This is Jerry Agar on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good morning. Toronto City Hall is proud of the fact that they caught some fraudsters and fired at least one. And overall, this is a good thing. I'll get to the however in just a moment. CTV News reports Toronto's top auditor is reporting a record number of fraud and waste allegations as part of her annual audit into wrongdoing within City Hall, leading to the firing of some city workers and even police prosecution. The Auditor General's office received 1,054 complaints via its reporting hotline last year, representing 1,450 allegations, the highest number since the program began in 2002. Examples? A city employee was found to own a subcontracting company that was being granted municipal contracts in breach of conflict of interest rules in at least four incidents. Another city worker submitted false benefits claims for 33 instances where no service was provided. That employee was also terminated and is now ineligible to work for the city. Toronto Councillor Josh Matlow told CTV Toronto, we cannot afford, literally, to have people defraud the taxpayers of the City of Toronto and have waste. We need to make sure that every single dollar goes to the priorities of the people of this city. Well, that's all well and good. I'm happy to know they're looking at it, and apparently it is possible to be fired from a public sector job. I'm not kidding about that. I think it's a good thing. But the auditor pegs the total loss to fraud and waste over the last five years at nearly $30 million. $6 million a year is $6 million a year. It matters. But Councillor John Burnside put out a list of ways the city could save hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and the rest of the council, pretty much, just ignored it. As it happens, Burnside was in the building this morning to participate on a panel, and I cornered him for a moment. I asked John Burnside, councillors are crowing about catching the cheaters, but why won't they fix the big stuff, such as you listed? Well, and I mean, that is the ultimate question. I think politicians, they don't really want to manage anything or fix anything. They just want to grab a headline, right? The other stuff is about making hard decisions or upsetting supporters, in this case, certain unions. And so they'd rather not do that, but they want to look like they're doing something. And when you have a headline like that it, and you grab it and you say it's unacceptable and I'm angry, all the words politicians use, it, it actually makes some people feel better. Now, for me, I get discouraged because it's the same old thing. Every politician is angry and, and, and says something is unacceptable uh, and that someone's going to be held to account. I don't know. Has everyone, anyone ever been held to account? All right. So you put out that list of places to save hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it, it went out publicly. I profiled it here and in the paper. What happened at City Hall? Well, so unfortunately, the, um, the big one was opening up uh, capital projects to other unionized shops. Get rid of the sole source contracting. Exactly. And Brad Bradford's been really strong in this. I need to give him a shout out. Shout out. But um, that decision was made actually under the John Tory uh, regime. They had the opportunity to to make that change. There, there, you needed some provincial approvals. Yeah, but he's not there now. And we're getting a nine and a half percent tax increase. And they, what did they do? Just ignore your list? Oh, they just, it was totally ignored. It, it, it Because... Nobody wants to make that hard decision or what they think is a hard decision, which is upsetting some of their friends and supporters. And, and therein lies the problem. And look, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not anti-union by any stretch of the imagination, but when we complain about big business or business having an undue influence on politicians, actually unions have 
a far greater influence because it's not about tracking donations. I think the maximum you can donate to a candidate is like $1,200, but they can throw bodies at election time. They can just thro throw people, tens, hundreds of people that can impact the outcome of the election, but there's no accountability. So these relationships are created and then it's very hard for some to, to, to break that relationship. I think he's right. That's John Burnside. Politicians looking for the headline, looking for a shiny object to take the focus off the fact that politicians looked after their own interests first and are often too lazy or unconcerned to do the hard work and make the difficult choices. They are supporting their friends. Burnside has made a great point about how unions support their friendly, in-their-pocket politicians. Oh, you need 20 people to go door knocking to support your campaign? No problem. Plenty of volunteers to draw from. The proof that Burnside's position is not anti-union is that if contracting were opened up in Toronto, more unionized shops, those now not on the preferred list, would be able to bid on jobs. In fact, here's a refresher on how Burnside says the city overspends. We are required by provincial legislation to operate one long-term care facility. Instead, we operate 10. This is an additional cost of approximately $84 million annually. The city shelter spaces are growing rapidly. If we offered the same proportion of shelter beds as other large municipalities, we would operate 2,000. However, we operate 10,600 at an additional cost of $193 million per year. The closed tendering process is estimated to cost us over $340 million annually. The city's mandated rent geared to income program exceeds the province's mandate by 4,397 units. That's an annual cost of $37 million and will increase further by 1,296 units at an additional cost of $11 million annually when fully implemented. Within three years, and while still offering 10,600 shelter beds, we could save $216 million annually, which would equate to a 5% property tax reduction. Those items, Burnside listed, add up to about $833 million a year. Is it fair to assume the city could save a billion dollars a year if they really wanted to, if they really tried? I think so. But don't think about that. Think about the $6 million they caught other people stealing. Audit committee member and Councillor Paula Fletcher told CTV Toronto, we do need every dollar and we do need to say, if you're going to break the rules, we're going to catch you. She has identified the problem. What the councillors are doing is not breaking the rules. Self-interest, laziness, and incompetence, lack of concern, are all legal in a well-paid city councillor's office. And they just don't give a damn. That's the problem. They're happy to come out, as Josh Matlow did, and as Paula Fletcher did, to puff up their chest about what the Auditor General, not them, what the Auditor, uh, the auditor did in finding the fraud, waste, and abuse, and doing something about it. Some people were identified. They've been fired. Some are under police investigation. That's all good. But I'm giving the thumbs up to Toronto's top auditor. Not the city councillors. They aren't looking for this. They don't care. If it is easy for one councillor to identify places where hundreds of millions of dollars could be saved, 
And the rest of council not only doesn't bother to respond, doesn't bother to come out and say, well, maybe John Burnside says that, but here's the reason we don't agree with him, to have a legitimate debate about it. No, no. They just go, eh. And that's about as much effort as they put into it. It's, it's unconscionable. And I've talked to counselors and watched them tap dance while they try to explain why they they favor, because the biggest expense that can be identified is this private contracting group they have. I mean, that should be illegal, first of all. Oh, we're going to catch somebody breaking the rules. We caught somebody doing such and such, and we saved a few hundred thousand dollars over there. Okay, that's good. But look in the mirror. Just for once, for God's sake, look in the mirror as a city councilor and ask yourself if you're a good person, if you actually care about the taxpayer. And if you think the answer is yes, then call now. In fact, I'll tell you what, any city councilor in the city of Toronto, the only city in the province that still uses this closed shop for contractors, I'll guarantee you this, if you're a Toronto city councilor and you finally perk up the spine to talk about this, 416-872-1010, and in the middle of something else, I'll put you on the air to explain this to people, okay? You'll get priority. Yeah, Yeah, but then I might not get volunteers for my next election. I don't think I'll call him. Coming up a little later this morning, we'll talk to the head of the Toronto Police Association. At least he'll at least he'll stand behind uh, whatever it is he believes in. John Reed on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. On the go, take News Talk 1010 Toronto with you. Download, listen, and learn through the iHeartRadio app. Now back to Jerry Agar. Good morning. Good to have you along. Hope you had a good weekend. When politicians move to try and control the internet, they always profile that their intention is to keep young people off porn sites. And it's a good move politically because very few people are going to come out in support of 13-year-olds having easy access to porn online. However, I'm not happy when politicians start talking about controlling the Internet. I was criticizing Pierre Polyev on this last week, just in case when I go after the Justin Trudeau government right now, you forget that I sometimes do, in fact, go after conservatives on often the same issue. Okay, Um, here's the headline from the CBC. Ottawa to create regulator to hold online platforms accountable for harm from harmful content. What they're going to do, they say. Here's the opening paragraph. The Online Harms Act, expected to be introduced by the federal government today, will include the creation of a new regulator that would hold online platforms accountable for harmful content they host. The new regulatory body is expected to oversee a digital safety office with the mandate of reducing online harm and will be separate from the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission. Now, um, here's my problem with it. First of all, I, I would need a lot more information from the government, from Justin Trudeau, Pierre Polyev, whoever else pushes these kinds of things, on how they think they can do this. The Internet seems ungovernable in that regard. I'm not supporting kids being on porn sites. I'm not. I'm not happy about some of the flat-out lies that float around on the Internet. 
But trying to control the Internet is not, first of all, not doable and not the way to go about it, I think. And if you are running uh, an app or some other service, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to sue Google if some kid goes online, um, Googles up a porn site, not difficult to do, then what do you do? Sue Google because you found the 13-year-old who, this headline popped into my head. (laughs) It was The Onion. Man discovers naked woman on internet. (laughs) Really? (laughs) What an astounding discovery. Uh, So um, it's just uh, endemic, isn't it? Uh, It seems to me that the better way is for parents to lean into the difficult work of educating kids and maybe programs in school to educate young people that porn's not real. I mean, at the the very least, when they see it, because they will, that they at least know that that's, that's not how a real relationship is supposed to work. I think it's very important, especially for young girls to know, no, you don't have to, no, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you don't need to be treated that way. Okay? Um, all kinds of lessons that could be taught. But here's where I'm really worried about any government that steps in to say that they're going to do this. I don't think kids getting porn online is their objective. I think their objective is couched in something else. And we're going to do something about harmful and misleading content on the Internet. I was talking with Tom Korsky last Thursday of Blacklocks.ca. He joins me every Thursday at 1135. Blacklocks is about the business of accessing government documents, reading all the files that you and I don't have the time to go through every day, and reporting on what government does. And I said to Tom Korsky, gee, I think if I were in Ottawa... Tom, and part of the government, and actually thought it was a good idea to regulate the misinformation that comes out on the internet, one of the first places I would go would be blacklocks.ca and shut you down. And Tom said, gee, Jerry, I never thought of that, other than about 12 times a day. Of course, the government would be about the business of regulating what you get to put on the internet, what you get to read on the internet. Can you read a lot of misinformation and flat-out lies on the internet? Yes. An intelligent person would have to realize that more than one source is a good idea, puts uh, the onus on you and me to do some work, but I think we have to do it. Rather than cede control to a government, which can't control pornography, but could control Tom Korsky, for instance. They know where he is. Frequently, right there at Parliament Hill. Here's Jacob. Hi, yeah. So I, I kind of disagree with you. I think that the problem with the bill is more that it's doing stuff with extremism stuff because that stuff, honestly, between me and you, it's obviously led by the government. It's not a problem for kids. It's not like any kids looking up, you know, fake carbon tax numbers and climate denial stuff, which is then like destroying them. It's just like deployed by the government to just be able to crack down on stuff they don't like. But I think. Regarding porn, it's something that is very important and the government has to take care of because I think I saw a study that the average day of kids being exposed to porn nowadays, like hardcore stuff, is about nine years old. Okay, and Jacob, I'm not arguing that with you. I, I, how, how do you control that? Well, I know that there are some states in the U.S. that they, and they put in place laws that you need to have age verification on porn sites. Yeah, how does that work? I mean, it works that you have to go to a third-party site and verify your ID, which, I mean, a lot of people end up not liking it and they don't use it, and a lot of porn sites just totally blocked IP addresses from that state. Can I tell you a story? 
Sure. Okay. I've uh, I've told this story in the air before, but uh, back when people first started getting concerned about this, and they were all happy with themselves in the um, I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, doing talk radio there, and uh, the school system spent a tremendous amount of money. I can't remember how much it was, but they bought this software they installed in all of the computers at the school, and it was designed to keep the kids off. Um, porn sites. I thought it was a good idea, but then somebody informed me that it was ridiculous and, and didn't work. And so I set up an experiment where I had some computers um, brought into the control room, and I had uh, that same software that the government had spent all this money on installed on the computers, and then I had some families volunteer, that, uh, and a bunch of dads came in with some 16, 17-year-old sons, because uh, I had to have parental permission in order to do this, and my idea then, Jacob, was how long if possible, will it take these young lads to get through that piece of software and get to a porn site? Uh, that's why I had to have parental permission, because they were going to find a porn site. And uh, so we set it all up at the beginning of the show. I figured this is go for a while during the show. I said to these young lads, go. And then I started saying, so what we're doing here, just to, and a kid went, got it, bam, he was through that software that fast. How do you stop that, Jacob? So, I mean, the the... Um, the benefit of the age verification thing is that it puts the onus on the porn sites that they have to verify the age of everybody visiting the site. So it's not something on the client side that the kids okay. get around. It's porn site is in Czechoslovakia. What do we do now? Sorry? Well, if, the, if you're going after Pornhub, fine, they're in Canada. You're going after a porn site that's located in Uganda or Czechoslovakia or Brazil. What are you going to do, Jacob? Well, I mean, the government is able to, and they do it quite often. They're able to, you know... Have warrants. I don't know exactly how the legal process works, but to like you know, lock sites and like you know, kick them offline and that type of thing. So I, it's, not, it's definitely something that exists. It definitely wouldn't necessarily be the easiest. But I think it's something that's very doable and will. I, I think you, I disagree with you, Jacob. I think it's impossible to do. You can't control companies in other countries. I believe you're able to block like stuff from well, online. If you, if you want the government of Canada to start blocking the Internet like China does, then I guess, I guess maybe then it would work, possibly. I don't know. Do they look at porn in China? <laughs> but, the, but Jacob, uh, I've given you the whole, sub, uh, whole topic here, uh, <laughs> but I do appreciate your call. So uh, because you disagreed with me, that's why I took your call. But, but what about the other aspects of it? What if they decide that uh, blacklocks.ca, Tom Korsky, is putting out information harmful to the current government and shut him down? Are you okay with that? Well, I think it should be delineated of something that's harmful for kids, like Porn has been proven scientifically to be mentally Yeah, yeah but, we're, uh, but, but there's more to it than porn, Jacob. That's what I'm saying. They are also saying they, they want to block misinformation. Right, that's, not, that's what I'm saying. I think there should be a law that is specifically something which is scientifically proven to be mentally harmful for kids, not something which the government thinks that will make kids be future conservative voters. Well, yeah, but you have to be careful that what they tell you they are doing might be different than what they're actually trying to do. But I appreciate your call. Thanks for the conversation. Um, upcoming, multi-generational living is becoming more popular. Maybe beyond multi-generational, multi-family living should become more popular. We'll talk about that coming up as a blunt against the cost of housing in the GTA on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Jerry Agar continues. You ever see that show, The Waltons? 
There was a whole bunch of people living in the mountains of West Virginia or something uh, back in the 1930s, and they all lived together in one big house. Grandpa and Grandma and the, the, the son of Grandpa and Grandma with his wife and all their kids, and it was a three-generation family. And by the way, if you missed it, here's how the show always ended. At the end of the show, it was nighttime. The sun had gone down. And you see the house dark. The lights are all turned out. And you hear them calling up and down the hall. Good night, Grandma. Good night, John boy. Good night, Ma. Good night, Pa. Good night. <laughs> uh, and then they'd all go to sleep at the same time. <laughs> the whole family. And then they'd wake up and start another episode. Anyway, uh, now I thought of it because I'm looking at an article here in the Star. All together now, multi-generational housing is their answer. Multi-generational living becoming more popular as it shares housing costs, can help older relatives as they age, and result in on-site help with grandkids. All of that is good within a family. But I wondered, extending this out, why more people don't do what immigrants have sometimes done, and that is with, uh, with family sometimes and sometimes with people that they know. Um, they put together an arrangement where they save up money and together they buy a house. And they all live in it until they can save up more money to buy a second house, and then one of them moves out and goes into the second house, and then there you are, a family who through sacrifice and uh, cooperation now own a home, two homes. They each own a home. And then, seeing how things go, they will raise a generation of kids who will think they should have a house instantly. And that's part of the problem. Houses are expensive in the GTA. There's no question about that. But you have to deal with it is what it is to some degree. So if you can't solve that problem overnight, could you get together with some people you know and buy a house and all live in it until you can buy another one? I don't know why young people wouldn't be willing to do that. Well, I shouldn't have to. My parents, you know, we're not talking about what you should have to be able to do. Overcome the problem. Work the problem. What, the, what would the legalities be of that? I mean, you can do it legally, but what kind of contract should you have with the people you cooperate with in this scenario? Real estate lawyer Bob Aaron joins me. Good morning. Morning, Jerry. Thanks for having me. You ever see the Waltons? <laughs> no, but I, I know about them. Okay, all right. Um, so have you seen arrangements where a couple of people say, hey, we're pretty good friends and we, we could buy a house together and live in it together? And if so, what kind of legal arrangement do they have to make? Well, first, it's, it's very easy to get people together and say this is a good idea, but, but the practicalities become challenging. So you would want to have a joint venture agreement where everything is set out. If three people are upstairs and there's no separate hydro, hydro meter and there's only two people downstairs, how do you divide hydro? How do you divide, um, how do you divide other utilities? Is it three-fifths and two-fifths or is it 50-50? Um, it's, it, it becomes challenging in, in working out the practicalities. All right, but I love the way that you said it right off the top. You bring people in and you say to them, look, you're all happy and glad-handing and you're going to do this thing, but you're, you're, you're making a business deal here. So let's start from that and take the, the personality out of it and make a cold, hard contract. That seems like the way to start. The big challenge is not putting it together. The big challenge is putting it in writing how it's going to be unwound if one, pers if one side is wants out if one side goes into default and the other side has to 
has to uh, make up the, the defaulting party's uh, arrears. It, it gets it gets ugly and difficult. It can get ugly and difficult if if uh, if, if there are problems and you want to unwind it. Okay, you but have to have an exit strategy. That's what that's what I'm emphasizing. Yeah, if you and I, Bob, had gotten together for lunch and I said to you, "Hey, I got this business idea," and you said, "Oh my gosh, that's a great business idea. I want in," then we'd have to do the same thing. We're not going to be living together, but we're going to do business together, which in some ways can be more difficult. I'm in some arrangements where I have partners in rental property ventures, and when you're not living there, it's a lot easier to make the decisions. But when you're actually living there and it's the shelter and, and it keeps you dry in the rain and warm uh, in the cold weather, um, emotions get into it. And then how do you, how do you work it out um, when, when you're actually living there? It becomes a lot more complicated than just a business arrangement. Uh-huh. Does it work better if it's family? Well, some people might say it works worse. <laughs> well, then what you have to do is put a divorce agreement together before you're divorcing. I have some friends who are have for many many years have been sharing with the parents, and it, it worked really well until the parents decided they needed the money from the sale of the property to go into a nursing home or a senior care facility. Now the place has to be sold, and the younger generation hasn't got enough money from the sale of half the property to buy something else. It can get very complicated. You'd have to try and find somebody who would agree to buy and move in. Yes. Yeah. Now, somebody just wrote here, Bob, um, had friends that bought a home together. Everything was fine until one of them got married and then it got messy. That's that's right. That's that's why I talk about an exit strategy. You have to have an exit strategy in case one party wants to move out, in case one party goes into default, in case more people move in. And, and it, it, it can get very complicated. I'm talking to real estate lawyer Bob Aaron. There's an article today, multi-generational housing is becoming more popular, and three generations of a family may be living together in a house, and that's how everybody can have a house in this expensive market. I was extending it out to friends getting together and owning one home together until they can save up more money and get a second house and then move on with their lives. This is, this is very much um, what many immigrant families have done. Let's try to talk positively a little bit, Bob, though. I mean, it's a good idea. It's, yes, it's a good idea. If everything works out, it's, it's a great idea. Um, I, I would suggest that you'd have to have two kitchens and two separate living quarters uh, separated by a door so that you're not into each other and sharing each other's space all the time. So I think it's important that you share um, separate quarters because if you're sharing the same kitchen and the same bathrooms, it can get kind of messy. A lot of houses can be split up at least temporarily that way by saying we're going to put a door here and we're going to close off the downstairs. We might contact you and say, hey, such and such a show is on that we all love. Why don't you come upstairs and have a beer and we'll watch the show? Uh, But then when you want to go home, you go home. When they want you to go home, you go home and you go downstairs. And if you don't mind dirty dishes stacking up in the sink, then you deal with it because it's your sink and not theirs. But those are the little things that would just get on people's nerves otherwise aren't they yes and, and dividing a house dividing a single family into two is is, is problematic because you the, the upstairs unit has to have a second means of exit yeah there has you have to have a fire exit so if there isn't a, a, a an external stairway and there's only one stairway upstairs it, it may not meet fire code 
Well, I'm thinking what would happen, Bob, if you and I were going to do this. The first thing we'd have to do is, what kind of house are we going to have to buy in order to make this work? And that's all we'll look at. We'll look at houses that are already split, um, that have had two families in them, where the basement uh, apartment was being rented out or wherever. Or we'll find houses where we know, well, look, we can just do this and this, and the thing will be up to code, and we'll have two separate living arrangements. You'd make that part of your pre-buy. That's, that's a great idea. It, it's expensive and it's complicated if you're going to convert single family to two family, but it can be done and it has been done. And, you know, some of us have done it and, and it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, do you have clients who have done this? Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah I've, done, I've done it myself. Not, I haven't lived in it, but I've done it as an investment. And, yeah, it works out. Um, and when my partner said, uh, let's sell, I said, fine. We can keep it, we can sell it. So if everybody agrees, it works out. If everybody doesn't agree, or some people, one of the parties has uh, financial problems, um, it can get complicated. Yeah, like one person uh, writing in about the experience here, neither wanted to move and neither had the capital to buy out the other. Well, I guess what they didn't have was an agreement as to how to overcome that uh, way ahead of time. And and talking to somebody like yourself, Bob, would be, you've dealt with this, you're a professional, you're a third party, you're dispassionate to some degree, and you say, believe me, this will be an issue if you don't work it out now. Uh, A lot of real estate lawyers like myself have checklists for going into a joint venture agreement such as this. And the the big it's sharing the expenses and access and and uh, snow removal and gardening that's the easy part. Yeah. The dif- the difficult part is putting the exit strategy in writing. And if everybody can overcome that and meet the the list the items on my checklist, then fine, we'll prepare an agreement. All right, Bob Aaron, thanks very much. Jerry, thank you. This is the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Listen anytime, anywhere to News Talk 1010 Toronto. Through your Apple CarPlay or Android Auto, Jerry Agar continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We were talking last week about Lynx Air going down and people wondering what was going to happen with their tickets, etc., Uh, In fact, I logged on on my phone to my bank account and there was a notice that came up about disputing fees with Lynx Air. If you had a problem in that regard, I don't because I didn't have a ticket with them. And I tend to uh, avoid those kind of discount airlines for reasons we talked about last week, not the least of which is I always worry they might not be in business by the time uh, my trip comes around. Um, But Brian Lilly is writing about another aspect of all of this that I had hadn't realized. Lynx Air, like Flair, owes millions in unpaid taxes to Ottawa. That's the headline in the Toronto Sun, and the political columnist for the paper is Brian Lilly. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Jerry. This time last week, I was sitting in the airport waiting to board a Lynx Air flight to come home. Um, so I'm glad I made it uh, by the week. But, but my understanding is there's not really any hassle with getting your money back on the credit cards because with these carriers, what I'm told is a lot of the banks won't send the money until the flight's complete. Oh, so the so actually the airline doesn't have your money. Yeah, um, that that that's how it was explained to me. Um, you know, check with your own uh, company if if you're you know had a flight booked, but that's my understanding. 
Okay. Well, I hope people come out of this okay. I hope the people that wrote to me and said that their vacation is now in danger can uh, can overcome that. They not only need the money back, they've got to find a different flight, which could, you know, but anyway, that's one aspect of it. But you're talking about a tax issue here, uh, and it, it feels to me, reading your article, there's more to this than, well, they went bankrupt and didn't pay their last tax bill. I mean, I guess the, the government could be uh, shorted just as much as any other creditor, but it's a bigger issue than that, isn't it? It is. So um, I wrote about the tax issue with Flair first, uh, and then was looking at the um, the bankruptcy filings of Lynx and discovered that they also owed um, they owed twenty five million by the time the government came calling. Um, they had started to pay some of that down through an arrangement, and their uh, bankruptcy filing says they owe twenty four. But in both cases, the airlines were importing planes and uh, either not paying the GST or uh, either way, they weren't paying the GST. When you import an airplane, the way it's explained to me is you owe 5% to the government. Both of these uh, airlines were based in Alberta, which has no uh, sales tax. So it's just the straight 5% that they owe the federal government. So you import the plane, you're supposed to pay the GST as you import it. And then you can apply for what's called an input tax credit, which is essentially getting the money back because it's for commercial purpose. Strange accounting, but these are the rules. Somehow, Flair ends up owing $67 million and it get, this is over two years, and it gets to the point where the federal government issued a writ of seizure. You might have heard about this in a Globe and Mail article a little while ago, and it, the federal government said, oh, it's nothing. And Flair said, oh, this is just import duties. There's no import duties on planes. They weren't paying the GST that was due when they brought the planes into the country. That should have been done at each time a plane came in. They brought in 20 planes. They ended up owing $67 million before the feds caught on and said, hey, wait a minute. You've got to do this. You know, I put it to all the listeners who run their own business, small business or otherwise, how far does CRA let you get before they say you owe us GST? You haven't paid your taxes. It doesn't get to 67 million. It doesn't get very high at all from what I'm hearing. So Flair gets 67 million. Uh, Lynx gets to 25 million. They come to an agreement, uh, Lynx does, with the federal government to pay it back in November. And they went bust last week. Uh, Flair came to an agreement after the seizure uh, order was issued. Then there was a bunch of lobbying going on by high-powered connected lobbyists with the feds, and they came came to an agreement and they rescinded the seizure order last week. What's going to happen to the airline? Who knows? But if you're in t- in tight already, where are you going to get $67 million to pay off the taxes that go? Okay, but there's a part of this that uh, um, maybe I'm going to defend the airlines here. I mean, I hate to see people in trouble because of massive tax bills, because I think Ottawa already is using and abusing way too much of our money. Um, you got to pay your taxes. But if there's a process whereby a company pays the tax, fills out some forms and gets the money back, well, what difference does it make? They're going to get the money back anyway. Well, see, you remit the money to one part of government, you get the rebates from the other. Is there a possibility here that they applied for the rebate and didn't send in the money? 
<laughs> well, you can uh, applying for the rebate and uh, and then asking the money back. Then they, that sounds like fraud to me. If they're if they can be uh, shown to be committing fraud, then they shouldn't be in business. But if it's simply a matter of send the money in, then we'll send it back. I mean, that seems like the kind of Ponzi scheme we're being sold on the carbon tax. Yep, which is why it's puzzling to me um, as to why both airlines owed the money. Were they taking the rebate and 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 not submitting? Um, you know, Flair, Lynx is out of business now, so it doesn't matter. Uh, I asked Flair directly about that; they did not deny any of it. So we're you know we're still trying to build on the story and see exactly what was going on. But something untoward was happening. You don't get a a, a writ of seizure issued by a federal court over paperwork mix up. You you know you have to owe the money somehow. For that to happen, um, so you know that's massive incompetence on the part of the federal government, or something nefarious on the part of the airlines. Both are claiming privacy and secrecy, and not telling us. But uh, and there's no public documents to support the writ of seizure for to tell us more. Okay, but another aspect of this I wonder about is um, lots of people are writing in as you and I are talking here saying, hey, the planes land on federal airports. It wouldn't be very difficult for the government to just seize the plane. But uh, who actually owns the plane? I mean, do these airlines own these planes outright or do they have a huge mortgage on the plane, which I'm not sure the government uh, necessarily would get all their money back? They tend to lease them. Uh, That is the way that it's normally done. Uh, for a lot of these smaller airlines, they lease the planes. In the case of uh, Flair, uh, they lease them from, um, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them from a, uh, a high-profile company that I wrote about uh, this past week as well, uh, 777 Partners. Um, they're in the middle of trying to take over Everton Football Club. They're involved in movies. They're involved in a lot of things. And uh, there always seems to be interesting stories surrounding that company everywhere they go, as I summarized in the the Sun this week. All right, here's a, a person who says, I'm a small business owner, couldn't pay my quarterly HST. I couldn't sign into my account for some reason. They sent me a notice a week later saying I owed, <laughs> and, and, and they were giving me a $500, or it was $500 or something, and I had to explain to them that they didn't charge me, so they didn't charge me a penalty. He owed 500 bucks, and they were all over him, but an airline owes $60 million, and it's, oh, you know, well, we're trying to figure this out. Um, I, I, I just hope well for uh, all the people who work for to, for an airline that goes down, that they uh, can find work. It's a tough business right now. Brian Lilly, always good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jerry. You can follow up on this with Brian Lilly's column on it in the Toronto Sun. Today is the day that um, one fair program begins in the GTA. Is this a good idea? How does it work? I'm going to talk to Karen Stentz, former TTC chair on Party for Two on the iHeartRadio talk network.